Regina, I see your work in MTV, Vanity Fair, Elle magazine, Netflix, Washington Post, Rolling Stone and more. You're crushing it at the moment. You're writing about the Hallyu phenomenon in some of the world's biggest platforms. How does that feel? Yeah, I mean, like, usually it feels great. Um, but sometimes, like, I mean, I mean I, like, I know that there's so many writers out there right now who are writing about the Hallyu phenomenon. So I just mm. feel like I'm one of many. So sometimes like it doesn't really feel all that special, but um, but usually, yeah, like I feel I feel the best like right after my article has been published and like mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like finally out there. Yeah. Is so, yeah. is it competitive like with other journalists or things like that? You said you're not the only one writing about it. I get that. And so is it kind of friendly? Is it competitive? What's the 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 environment like? Um, it's really hard for me to tell. Like, I just know that like there are uh, a lot of um, uh, Cape, like Korean pop culture writers out there, especially those who focus on K-pop. Mm -hmm. um, and then again, you know, like maybe like compared, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure if you compare it to like, for example, like, you know, people who write about like American film or like, you know, American music, like obviously it's still a very small number, yeah. but like compared to like, say even like five years ago, I feel like there are a lot more um, writers who like focus on K-pop and other aspects of Korean pop culture. Um, but it's really hard for me to like tell like how competitive it is because like generally uh, what I do is like when it comes to K-pop, for instance, like mm. if like usually it's like some PR agency uh, that's, you know, working on behalf of a record label to promote, you know, some of their artists and they'll reach out to me. Um, and if I get like a fair number, you know, I might reach out to like some of the publications that I, I usually work for, for example, like L, uh, MTV News. And if I, and I want to say that like usually when I, you know, pitch it to them, like mm -hmm. at least one of the publications will accept my pitch mm -hmm. um, when it comes to K pop. That said, you know, in the future, like I am hoping to pitch kind of like more, you know, like Korean indie artists or even like K pop artists that, uh, are popular in Korea, but not very popular outside of Korea. Mm. And like so far, like I found that like editors here in the US are generally not uh, open to accepting those kinds of pitches. Um, at least, you know, definitely not compared to like the, the regular K-pop uh, pitches. And for like a K-dramas, I guess um, it's even like less competitive in that, in that space in some sense, because um, I mean, I feel like... Uh, there weren't that many people writing about K-dramas until like Squid Game came around. Mm. And like, um, I mean, even that article that I wrote for Elle last year, uh, I remember like when I was writing it, uh, I had to do like a lot of research and like, I just couldn't really find a lot of like English language articles written about the topic of K-dramas, like the mm. history of K-dramas. And so like, I remember having to like interview a lot of uh, Korean experts and uh, read a lot of um, Korean language articles. Mm. So I, I wanna say like right now, um, K-dramas is like writing about K-dramas isn't that competitive, but I think it is starting to become more and more competitive, especially Every after Squid Game. Everyone had an opinion on Squid Game. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I want to get into them. You, you just said that you were reading like Korean language articles as well. Do you think that gives you an advantage, you know, being able to read Korean or having that sort of Korean heritage as well? Do you, do you, does that give you an advantage when you're doing this, Regina? I think it does. Um, and I say that because like, uh, I would say probably like, almost half of the editors that I've worked with decided to work with me, work with me because I am of Korean 
uh, dissent. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like at least a couple of them have explicitly explicitly told me that um, the, you know, the reason why they wanted me to write about a certain topic uh, pertaining to Korean culture was because I'm Korean American and because mm -hmm. like I understand the culture and can read the language and can also interview people in Korean. I think the language thing is really important. I mean, when I write, I try to base it as much as I can on the, the Korean language and what's happening here in Korean. Um, despite doing that, you know, no matter what I write, there will always be blowback. There will always be something. Have you, have you survived with that? Because writing about K-pop, writing about Hallyu, you know, there are reputations that come with these things and fans can be very emotionally attached and you can put things up and people will start, you know, uh, criticizing just because they're bored sometimes because they want sensation. Have you survived with all this, like writing in the 21st century about such uh, topics about which people are so passionate about? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I survived, I would say. I mean, that's yeah. why I, you know, continue to write about these topics. But um, I mean, I think most of my articles haven't been that controversial. Um, and, and generally, like, you know, if I if I don't like a particular K-drama, for instance, or I don't like a particular K-pop artist, like, I'll just choose not to write about them. You know, mm -hmm. it's as simple as that. Like, I mean, I'll probably honestly, like, turn down, like, half the requests that I get. <laughs> um, but, you know, I will say that, uh, so that, that Van Vanity Fair article that I wrote about Squid Game. Mm. Um, so that's probably the one where, like, I got the most amount of blowback. Um, you know, because I was uh, writing about like the mixed reactions that South Koreans had mm -hmm. uh, about Squid Game. And, you know, it's it's a series that has just received like, you know, so much praise uh, in the U.S. Um, I don't think I've even seen. Well, I think I have seen like maybe like one negative review of Squid Game mm -hmm. in, um, in the U.S. media. And that was like that was it. Um, and, you know, people, I think were just kind of like shocked by what I wrote. Like, I think everyone just kind of like assumed that like, you know, because so many Americans loved it, like, of course, like every South Korean has to love it even more. And you know, mm. that wasn't, the, that wasn't the case. Mm. And, um, and like, I also got, um, some criticism from, uh, like Koreans, or at least like they call it, like they say that they're Korean on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So I had to <laughs> kind of like believe them. Um, and they're like saying like, oh, like this writer is portraying, uh, portraying Koreans in a negative light. Um, but, you know, it was all something that I could deal with. And it's something that you would expect, you know, like if, yeah. if you don't expect that kind of backlash from time to time, then you just can't be a journalist. Um, and, and I felt like, you know, I wasn't purposely like, you know, trying to like downplay Squid Game success or like, you know, say anything negative about it. I was really just trying to convey mm. what a lot of South Koreans felt because I just felt like, I mean, and, and like, I will say that like another reason why I actually wrote that article was because um, in the U.S. it was like people, there's just so many uh, people, whether they're like, you know, American journalists or just like the American public in general who just like made it seem like all Korean dramas were like Squid Game, uh, Squid Game, mm -hmm. or like you know, like Squid Game was like the only K drama out there that was you know really popular and worth watching. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you like read my article to the end, like I try to like you know uh, cite like 
examples of other K-dramas, you know, that have been popular, maybe not so much in the U.S., but in other parts of the globe. And it was really like kind of my way of telling people, hey, there's just like so much content out there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just Squid Game. Yes, like it's great that like, you know, Squid Game blew up, blew up like it did. Right. Um, it definitely opened a lot of doors. But like, you know, if you're wondering why maybe like why there wasn't that same uh, level of reaction in South Korea is because like Koreans are just so used to watching like really high quality content. Yeah. And a lot of them still watching the, the saguks and things like that over here, you know, they still yeah. dominate so much of the airwaves. Yeah. And it, listening to you speak, Regina, it makes me imagine that people writing about K-dramas or K-pop sort of like 10 years ago, they must have felt that they were sort of shouting into the public square and nobody was listening to them. But now, you know, everyone's on this. Do you think it was the Vanity Fair one that was like the biggest one that had the reach? Did you like, have there been any of the pieces that you've wrote? And we'll go through some of them in detail, but have there been any of them where like you've gone to bed and woken up the next day and just seen that it's kind of exploded or anything? Um, I will say uh, the L article I wrote about, um, you know, you, you can't stand K-pop and not uh, stand against anti-Asian uh, hate or like mm. anti-Asian racism. Mm -hmm. um, that one, like that one just like really exploded. <laughs> um, I mean, that was probably, uh, I want to say like, just based on like uh, the reactions that I saw on social media, I felt like that one was uh, probably the most popular article that I've written so far. Mm -hmm. um, but even, uh, Another L article that I wrote, the one about like kind of like the history of K dramas, like the K drama renaissance. And actually, yeah. I want to say that that's probably still like the article that I'm most proud of, just because like when that was published, mm. I want to say that like at the time, like there, there just wasn't really any other English language article, not like not scholarly paper, like I'm not talking about, you know, academic sure. papers, but I'm just talking about like, you know, like journalistic articles that people can read in like, you know, a few minutes. Um, I felt like my article was probably like one of the first articles in English to really cover the history and the evolution of K-dramas. Um, and that was when article, that was an article where like I still hear from different people, like mm -hmm. like people just reach out to me even to this day, um, just telling me that like, oh, like they just came across my article and felt like they learned so much about K-dramas and, um, you know, it's so it didn't like explode like in a week or anything, but like it's, I would say it's definitely one of my articles where like um, I've been getting like a st steady stream of positive remarks. That's a great thing that, and knowing that your work is always there. And mm -hmm. I use, I mean, I think that's the, one of the reasons, Regina, why I got in touch with you, because I use some of your articles for my Korean oh. studies classes, because sometimes oh, the I'm students, so <laughs> but sometimes the students, like you say, they don't want to read these long scholarly articles. They want an overview that's easily digestible, accessible, you know, it has some colorful pictures and looks 21st century, which, you know, your work does. Um, do you? so it's great and of course it will all be linked below do you read any of the scholarly articles do you ever sort of venture into them and, and try to or is it that's a different ball game for you um i mean i i occasionally do yes and like for that particular l article where um i you know i talked about the history of k-dramas I, I i believe i do cite or like I, I i believe i do like include links to mm -hmm. uh some scholarly articles 
Um, for example, like the section where I talked about like Latin America, like how K-dramas like blew up in Latin America, like, you know, how that happened. And yeah. um, there wasn't much research about that. And like, you know, I didn't want to just like lean on this one interview that I had with uh, one of my, uh, like one of the experts that I'm uh, friends with. Um, and so I just like did some Googling and like eventually I came across this like really like wonderful article that also like cited other scholarly papers like, oh, mm. wow, okay. Um, and it was in English, which is great because like, you know, I don't read Spanish. So, um, so yeah, like I do, I do. Like, you know, I do for, for every one of my articles, like whenever um, I feel like something requires like some research, then, mm. you know, I will go out and do it. And like, if that's a scholarly article that I have to go through, then I will. Yeah, I'm sure there's loads of professors and academics out there going, I've been writing about this for years. <laughs> and it, it is all there, but it, it's great that you do it. When I look at your website um, uh, and see your great collection of writing and all the topics that you cover now, um, and this is definitely not a criticism. I want, I want to be clear about this, Regina, but looking at the collection of your published work over time, and, and they go back to like 2016, there's a bit of a gap and then the resurgence in 2020. Do you think your topics and themes are becoming more mainstream? So like when you start out, you're writing about history of philosophy, Korean film, art exhibitions, Han. Um, and now when we look at them, it, it's K-pop, it's K-dramas primarily. Is this a natural evolution? Is it possible to bring some of those earlier elements to the mainstream publications or what's your perception on how the themes uh, and what you're writing about has changed over time in relation to Korean culture and content? Yeah. Um, so the funny thing is, like, I actually like from the very beginning, like I wanted to write about K-dramas and K-pop. Okay. Um, right. But like, but back in like, like, say like 2011, 2012, which is like when I kind of like started writing about it, like back then, like there just weren't that many opportunities, at least in the US to really write about those topics in English. Um, uh, and so really like the only opportunity that I could find at the time was uh, writing part-time for the Korean Cultural Service, which mm -hmm. is now uh, known as a Korean Cultural Center in New York. Um, they're a branch of the Ministry of Culture, Sports, and Tourism of Korea. Mm. And, um, and that was like, you know, right around like when I moved to New York and I was like, you know, hoping to kind of like pursue this passion of mine to like somehow promote Korean culture. And again, like there just weren't really any opportunities back then. Like people didn't really, at least people in the U.S., like they didn't really care about K-pop. They didn't know what K-dramas were. Mm -hmm. um, and so like the next best thing was uh, to write about like, events and like art exhibitions that were held at the Korean Cultural Service, which is like this like really like small, um, uh, I mean, yeah, like, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like, a, it's an office space, right? And mm -hmm. they, they also have like a gallery space. Yeah. Um, but I was like, I remember like at the time I was like super grateful for the opportunity because like that was really like one of like very few places in at the time, like in New York City that like showcased um, you know, like Korean artists and like Korean uh, cultural events on a regular basis. And so I was uh, hired as like a part-time reporter for them for about six months. Um, and that's why like, you know, you see my articles on like art exhibitions mm -hmm. and kind of like, I guess, more like niche areas. Um, yeah. And I mean, I really enjoyed writing about them. Um, and, and that's what like, I would say like, that, that, that was like one of my favorite uh, jobs I've ever had, even mm -hmm. though it was like one of my lowest paying ones. <laughs> <laughs> Often goes that way, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and so after that, yeah, and I, and that was just like for a term of like six months. And then um, I was also uh, like transitioning to like a more intense full-time job. And again, like I was constantly like trying to find opportunities to like write about Korean culture and I just couldn't really find them at the time. I, I mean, I guess like they didn't exist or maybe like um, I just was really bad at like finding them, I don't know. Uh, so I took on like a series of like full-time jobs. Some of them were like kind of adjacent to promoting Korean culture. Um, but, you know, because they were all like full-time jobs, like I didn't really have time to like, you know, continue my writing on the side. Mm. Um, but like, I think the few articles that I wrote in like 2016 was actually like in between jobs. So that's how I was able to like, you know, write about, uh, like director E. Junique, um, mm -hmm. who was absolutely wonderful. Like, I mean, that was, uh, I want to say like one of my favorite interviews ever, because like, he's such a sweet and humble person and yeah. like he was just like able to like explain everything like so well I mean like somehow like the whole interview was conducted in Korean and like I was thinking like oh my gosh like you know I barely know like <laughs> at the time you know I was like I, I barely know like um you know like film like film related terms in yeah. English like what if he uses like all this film jargon and like he didn't like he just like explained everything so clearly and um so yeah anyway that was like my favorite one of my favorite interviews and then like after like I went, like after 2016 ish, um, like again, like I just continued like working full time jobs. And the reason why um, you don't really like see me writing anything until like like 2020 ish was because mm -hmm. um, there was like a period of time where uh, like one of my full time jobs basically did not allow me to write anything outside of the organization. Wow. So yeah, I know. Like they were just really strict with me for some reason. Um, so after I left was like when I was able to finally um, uh, like start writing about Korean culture again. And to be quite honest, like it really happened uh, like thanks to the pandemic, thanks mm -hmm. to like, you know, the fact that like I was able to work from home because like, you know, I didn't have to commute to the office all the time. And so like, I could just use those uh, hours that I would normally use to commute uh, to and from the office to mm. just write. So your, your, your output since then has been pretty prolific, you know, and seeing it and across all these different um, mediums, it must be quite interesting to think that you're not allowed to write outside of your job. And then all of a sudden where you are, just, here comes the release. Um, moving, moving into some of the things that you have been writing about, and perhaps we'll start Regina with Korean dramas. Now, you know, when, when I teach Hallyu and, and when I have to talk and write about them in my lectures and in the press, it means I have to know them to some degree. And so I can't talk about these things without first having watched them. So like, and watching the dramas these days can be quite a commitment. So like you're talking at least like if a binged weekend or a whole day, if they're 12 episodes, one hours, do you have to watch a lot of like K dramas and things for work? How do you manage it? Do you watch them in fast forward? Do you just pretend you've watched it and just go onto YouTube and watch clips? Like it's a time commitment, isn't it? This is what I'm asking. Yeah. So how do you manage that? And what do you do? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so like, so I started working full time for Netflix as one of their writers. I write uh, articles for To Doom. Um, it's spelled T-U-D-U-M as in Mary, like To Doom. And that's uh, supposed to be the sound that you hear Netflix make when you log into Netflix, like To Doom, right? <laughs> I was wondering what the hell that meant. And that, that's it? 
Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's pronounced uh, to doom, and uh, they just launched the site yeah. uh, in December. Yeah. Um, and if you go to like Netflix.com/slash/to-doom, like you'll see a whole bunch of articles and videos about like some of the most popular shows on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I'm doing full time at the moment. And yes, like since my focus is on uh, K dramas and Korean films, um, I actually do spend most of my time these days watching K dramas. And you're right, it is a huge time commitment because, um, as you know, like, you know, most K dramas are like 16 plus episodes. I mean, mm-hmm. there are some now that are like about like eight to 10 episodes. But yeah, most of them are still like around 16 episodes. Whereas like, I mean, a lot of these American shows that you see on Netflix are like, what, eight episodes, if yeah. even that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it, I mean, you know, I, I, I try to like, I mean, I wish I could fast forward more often, but like I found that at least with K-dramas, it's if you fast forward, especially for like thrillers or like, you know, K-dramas. Like I recently wrote an article for To Doom um, that recommended like some of the top K-dramas, uh, sorry, top prime, crime dramas on mm-hmm. Netflix. And, you know, if you just like fast forward, even like for like a couple of minutes, like you miss what's going on. Right. You have to like pay attention the whole time. And so like when I was writing the article about like the top uh, seven Korean crime dramas on Netflix, I literally had to like watch every single one of them. <laughs> Although like, you know, it helped that like I had already seen two of them, like Stranger and Voice. And so yeah. like, I basically just had to kind of like, you know, uh, read some recaps and uh, like jog my memory. But, like the other ones, like I had to spend like, yeah, <laughs> I had to spend like most of my working hours, like watching every single episode from beginning to end. It's a dream job though, isn't it? I mean, some of my students, when I asked them like, they said, David, what? They want sangdam or counseling. What shall I do for my job? And so I asked them, what do you like doing? And they're like, I like watching dramas on Netflix. <laughs> there is a job out there for these people. I'm sure it's pretty difficult to get, but you're living the dream. Um, did you? That's what a lot of people say. But um, I have to say that like when you're like when you're in that environment, you know, and I see like my colleagues who are like, you know, watching like two or three American TV shows in like within one or two days. And I'm like, yeah. I'm still on like the 13th episode of this K-drama. You know? <laughs> that yeah. must be. Yeah, it must be hard to you kind of force yourself. Did you um recently I watched The Silent Sea. That's on Netflix, isn't it? Did you did you watch yeah. that one? Yes. Mm-hmm. What did yes. you think? I loved it. Um, I I thought it was like very well crafted, um, especially considering that like you know, it was like really like South Korea's like first like uh, uh, I guess like mystery series set in space. Yeah, yeah. So considering that, like you know, I I don't know maybe like I don't know if it's because like part of me kind of had like low expectations, but like when I saw it, like it really blew my mind. Um, I thought you know the acting was superb and like. The whole like you know concept around like lunar water i thought was interesting mm-hmm. but i know that like um that show for some reason just received a lot of negative reviews uh in western media um and i think like part of it is because a lot of critics didn't really seem to understand what happened like what actually happened in the series and like mm-hmm. it also makes me question like did, did they fast forward as well <laughs> you know like did they actually like watch like every episode or did they just kind of like skim through it and like, you know, watch the trailer or something? Um, because I felt like a, there were, like I came across some reviews that were just like, you know, not fully accurate. Sure. And also like a lot of them compared uh, the Silent Sea with Squid Game. 
And right. I'm just like, there's like no similarity except like they were both, you know, produced in Korea. They're both like K-dramas, but like, that's it. But it's almost like, you know, ever since Squid Game came out, yeah. it definitely feels as if like every subsequent, you know, K-drama is being compared to Squid Game. Well, I think that's what one of the things that I want to get into next, how we define K-dramas, because Silent Sea and Squid Game and uh, Kingdom, whatever, they're, they're all completely different, but then they're put into this umbrella term. But just with the silent sea, because I sat and watched it, um, and I thought it was interesting. I mean, if you see it in the Western context, you might be comparing it, I don't know, to Interstellar or The Martian or something like that, right? And then you might be disappointed. But I think if you see it in a Korean context and you understand, it's kind of like one of the first sci-fi things that they've done. I know there are more, but it's one of the really big first kind of space futuristic things that are being done, which hasn't traditionally happened here. And also you get these, the female characters are the ones that survive. Like, mm. oh, I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. That, that was interesting. And there's no love in it. There's no romance. There's not even, you know, this kind of, you know, home or anything like that, but it's just, there's no love. There's no romance. All the women survive. And it's, and I was like, that's really kind of interesting in a Korean context. So I, I mm -hmm. thought it was good for that. The acting of course was great as well. Yeah. And I think you, you like we are seeing like you know more and more K dramas that feature like strong female characters that have like less or like even no romance, um, and and I, I again like I don't I don't know like how many of these like English language reviews actually picked up on that. Exactly, um, I I saw that. Um, so yeah, <laughs> thank you for like you know mentioning all of that. <laughs> I saw that um, Slavoj Žižek, the the philosopher, he reviewed the new Matrix movie without watching it. Oh that's that's postmodernism no. now. Yeah, that's what people do. No. Don't do, don't do that, please. Um, it, let, let's get into this definition of K dramas then, because th this is a really interesting thing. That you know, there is this huge difference in theme, in genre, in style, but they're all mm -hmm. kind of lumped together as K dramas, even on streaming platforms like Netflix or in articles. And it's not a criticism, just an observation. In your piece for Elle magazine on the K-drama Renaissance, you took a couple of paragraphs, Regina, to try to explain and define what these K-dramas are. They're, they're soap operas, they're single season, they're high production, they're, they're middle class, they're Korean, but they're universal at the same times. It's, it's hard, similar to K-pop actually, it's kind of hard to define what a K-drama is sometimes. So what's your take on this Regina? how do we define k-dramas is it an appropriate term do we need to have like subgenres and and things like that or what's your take on mm. it regina yeah that's a very interesting question um i mean you know i simply think of k-dramas and i think i uh, wrote this in my l article uh i, I just think of k-dramas simply as scripted korean uh, shows mm -hmm. um I, I mean i like i used to say tv shows but like now since like so many of them are on streaming platforms like netflix yeah. like i would just call them like shows or series like scripted uh series um and you know as far as i can remember like that's the way that uh k-dramas have always been defined as and you know it's just like i just feel like that term has been like so ingrained and like just used like throughout the decades that like you know anyone who's like you know watched k-dramas will just call them like you know k-dramas mm -hmm. um, and people just understand that like there are definitely like you know different kinds of k-dramas especially nowadays where you have like you know crime dramas you have like thrillers horror mm -hmm. right it's not just like romance or like sagok anymore um 
so I feel like because that definition has already like kind of been set a long time ago like I just at least me personally like I just think of like k-dramas as like the all-encompassing term for scripted Korean shows yeah um but but I mean like you you bring up a great point and um you know in the future like I mean obviously like Korea is going to continue making like a huge variety of uh k-dramas right when it comes to like genres and so like should we uh create like a like a a term to describe some of these uh subgenres like yeah i mean i think i think you know that's uh that's a reasonable ask but is that gonna happen like i'm not really sure um and and i have to say that like you know, part of me kind of just wants to continue using this term like K-dramas because like even though like K-dramas have uh, recently become like like popular all over the world. I mean, I should say, okay, like I know they have been popular for in many other parts of the globe for right. a very long time. But like I'm thinking like especially in the West, like especially in the U.S., like Squid Game was definitely like the turning point. Right. Mm. Um, and so because I feel like uh k-dramas have like really taken off in the u.s like fairly recently like i kind of want to continue using using that term because like Mm. i still see a lot of people including some editors who are not really familiar with the term Mm -hmm. and it's like when they hear when they hear anything with drama in it you know they think of it as like oh it's like the opposite of comedy it's like something like you know super serious like they think of it like you know yeah in in those terms like the kind of the, the traditional hollywood terms right and um, I remember like uh, when I was like writing one of my articles and like the copy editor just like kept like crossing out like K-drama and like just replacing it with like other like another term. Right. And I'm like, well, no, this is the whole point. <laughs> like these are called K-dramas. So like I, I think, again, like there are many um, Americans who are not quite sure what K-dramas actually mean. Mm. Yeah. It it definitely works for branding. So I think even if it's not that accurate in because you have, for example, you might have hometown cha-cha-cha next to something like Squid Game or Sweet Home, and they're all completely different. And and my mother would watch hometown cha-cha-cha and she did and she loved it. But then if Squid Game comes on next, she's like, well, David, this is a bit violent. And, you know, it's it's completely different. But so it doesn't do a good job, I don't think, of defining and categorizing them like we like to do in the modern world but it does work for branding and image and awareness outside of korea doesn't it i mean it helps yeah because a k-drama can be anything then yeah yeah and i mean like you know in that case like for example like if we're talking about squid game like yes it's a k-drama but like you know in the same article like i would describe it as like a korean survival thriller or something like that so i mean you can always use these other terms to like further describe the the Mm -hmm. k-drama but I I think at least for now like I'd still like to see people continue to use k-drama as like the all-encompassing term yeah yeah. you're right like for branding purposes (laughs) especially I think in the international media sometimes maybe not as common anymore these days but it used to kind of be in the Korean language like jumal drama and pyongil drama like the weekend dramas the weekday dramas they would define them by not so much theme, but like when, when they would right. come on screen. I thought that was really kind of novel way. Um, yeah. You mentioned, Regina, these dramas uh, becoming more popular in the West. You know, like you can go back in Asia to Winter Sonata and all these dramas that have been hugely popular here and in this region. But now they're sort of, they're going everywhere. Um, you touch on this in your piece for Raoul, but 
Squid Game was a truly global phenomenon. Like that seemed to transcend class and and race and gender and everything. Everybody was watching that. Um, it was a bit like size Gangnam Style in that sense. I think it it was just yeah. that big, right? But if we get into, I would say it's more like BTS. <laughs> I mean, no offense to Psy, but he he's still yeah yeah absolutely yeah uh, yeah that that works for me um but but, but you i mean you, you're right too because like um that was really like the first time that like a korean drama just like blew up like and on every continent i would say yeah, yeah absolutely so i think it's kind of um uh it's an exception sometimes it's like that but if we take a normal k-drama and there are huge fans of k-dramas you can find the websites the translations that they all get into what who do you think and it's not monolith, but if we talk about who's normally watching K-dramas, like the regular K-dramas. Um, so if we put sort of Squid Game in a category all on itself because it's so big. But if we take okay. the rest of all the other K-dramas there, who do you think the, the demographic, do they point to a particular demographic? Are there certain people that are drawn to K-dramas? You mentioned a little bit the, the people in Latin America for this uh, similarity to no, novellas. Who are the fans? Apart from me and you, obviously. Uh, are you when you say like regular K dramas? I mean, are you talking about like rom coms or saguk or like all of them? Yeah, you can break them down if you want into different ones, but like um, they are becoming more popular, and I, I'm just trying to ascertain who's watching them. That's, okay, that's what um, I'm trying to get at. Now. Yeah, like. So what I can say is, um, so I actually uh, used to work for Drama Fever for like, I worked for them for a couple of years. And for mm -hmm. those who may not be aware, like Drama Fever was this like very, um, I would say like very uh, popular, like video streaming website that focused on showing uh, Asian TV shows, especially uh, Korean dramas, like mm -hmm. Korean dramas were like really uh, popular uh, on that website and like I say popular because um, uh, there was definitely um, a sizable like subscriber base um, we had a lot of uh, viewers who are based in the U.S. but also in other parts of the world and so for I would say a rather like niche uh, video streaming platform like mm. at the time it was like really successful and of course you know you also have Vicky uh, which is you know uh, still like doing very well today Mm. Um, but when I was working for Drama Fever, um, I remember like, uh, and this was like in like the 2010s, like 20, like uh, 2011 to like 12 ish or so. Mm -hmm. And we found that like many of our subscribers uh, that were based in the US were actually um, like women of like women who were like uh, black, Hispanic, or Latina. Mm -hmm. and white i mean we obviously like had a lot of like asian american viewers as well mm. um but like if i remember correctly like most of uh the subscribers were like female and they were again they were like you know white black or hispanic slash latina um so like like i remember thinking like oh that's like very interesting like you know i didn't think that like at the time like i right. i wasn't sure if these k-dramas would be so appealing to like non-asians but apparently they were and then um, I remember like last year when I was interviewing uh, different people uh, for my L article about the history of K-dramas, um, I actually like joined quite a few um, Facebook groups, mm -hmm. uh, Facebook groups of like uh, K-drama fans. And like, there's this like one uh, K-drama uh, Facebook group that's uh, mostly composed of people, like K-drama fans are based in the US. 
And I have to say, I mean, this group has like thousands of members mm. and I mean, you know, they're, I mean, like, like, I don't know exactly like what the demographics are, but like, I feel like it's about like, you know, roughly like you, you definitely see a lot of uh, men. You also see women, um, but they're of all ages. You see like, you know, men in their like fifties and sixties who are enjoying K-dramas. Um, you also see like, you know, women who are like older who are also watching K-dramas. And of course you also see like, so I, I, I like, I feel like now, like, there's such a wide range that like, it's really hard mm -hmm. to say like exactly like, you know, who these K-drama fans are, because I really do feel like, especially in recent years and especially like, you know, due to the pandemic, yeah. um, because mm -hmm. yeah, like, as you're probably aware, like, um, I mean, like during like from like, even, even just on Netflix, uh, there were, there's like a public statistic out there saying that between uh, 2019 and 2021, uh, U.S. viewership of K-dramas increased by over 200%. Wow. Um, yeah, like over 200%. Um, and that's just in the U.S. And so, like, you know, you, you definitely see that. Like, now I just feel like, um, you know, both men and women are watching K-dramas and you see people of all ages from, like, you know, like tweens and teens to, like, people who are, like, you know, 60 or above. <laughs> There's um when you just talked about the jump on Netflix of two hundred percent, which is phenomenal, and I, I think there's a lot of crossover effects there with Kisengjung or Parasite and BTS Blackpink. You know, it must all um, join together. Is and this is showing my ignorance here. I'm not sure if you can or, but Netflix is different in different countries. Like if I turn on Netflix in Korea, there will be different content from somebody in a different country. Um, are there there's like is there a, a korea in america is there a korean drama like category like a k-drama category but then my question would also be like is there a japanese drama category and a chinese drama category or do they all come up or do you search for them or how does it, that it, yeah it really depends on a netflix algorithm um i mean okay. netflix yeah has its own algorithm like i honestly don't know how it works but like i mean it's it, it basically like it's based on what you watched like okay. it's based on what you've watched in the past. And so like um, chances are like when I log into Netflix, um, I will like the categories, many of the categories that I see in my Netflix account will be different from yours. Right, right, right. Um, and I like personally, like, you know, I've seen a category that says like, you know, made in Korea and like, you know, East Asian TV shows or something like that. Um, but I see like a whole bunch of other, you know, like uh, categories. So it just really depends. Like, I don't know like how many of these like tags exist okay. but again it's just like very much tailored to your viewing habits that's really interesting that even some of the tags might be very different right i yeah. i sometimes check with my young nephew because we, we share <laughs> with netflix we share a netflix thing and if i go into his one i can see all the stuff that he's watching like all these kind of fantasy and right. yeah all that kind of very very different it's interesting how that works with netflix and, um, and like i want to say oh if i can just like add one more thing like i, I mean that's also, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons, like, you know, why I think, like, people started watching so many K-dramas during the pandemic was because, like, they just happened to, like, stumble a, uh, across, like, a K-drama. And, you know, after they finish watching that K-drama, Netflix will recommend, like, other K-dramas. And mm -hmm. I, when I interviewed people for my uh, L article, although, unfortunately, like, the editors had to, like, cut out, like, all, my, all the quotes uh, from my interviews because, like, my article was, like, already, already really long. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I remember like many of them saying, like many of the people that I interviewed said that, um, you know, they just kind of like fell, fell down a rabbit hole. Like they, like once they watched the K-drama, like Netflix just kept recommending another one and another one. And like now, I mean, some of them actually said that like now, like all they watch is K-dramas. Like some of the, quite a few of them actually told me that mm. they don't really watch American TV shows anymore. So I've, I've noticed that and that it's the effect has been real because I speak to people back in the United Kingdom in England, and they'll tell me that they've watched those K-dramas. So it's not just all, um, you know, media hype and fake news press and things like that, but there's genuine, which can happen, right? Let's be real about it, but it's genuine and people are watching it. Um, yeah. Oh, and it... sorry, and can I like add one more statistic? <laughs> Go on. So, so like you know uh, roughly be, uh, in that same time period like between 2019 and 20 like 21 like during the pandemic um you know i read that uh like global viewership of k dramas on netflix actually increased sixfold wow so if you think the statistic for yeah like uh us viewership is high like i mean across the globe like you know people like global viewership increased by like 600 percent. so it's a lot that I can definitely believe because when I teach the international students, the the students, let, let's just say from from Vietnam, from Hong Kong, uh, from Thailand, from India, their knowledge of K dramas and things like that is off the charts. You know, very passionate, uh, very into it, and definitely to be acknowledged and respected. If we stay on this Netflix thing, and again, you know, just feel free to say if you can't answer these questions or anything. But while we're here, um how much of the success is because of the content and the quality of the Korean dramas and how much is because it's on Netflix? So it's obviously both of these factors are working together and it's going to be really hard to put a percentage on it, right? But I'm just trying to wonder, you know, could these have succeeded? Could these dramas, could these things, could they have succeeded on their own? Or is is Netflix the driving force? And Netflix could also be the driving force between dramas from other countries. Do you, do you see what I mean? I'm trying to mm-hmm. ask, is it, you know, how do these two things interact? Is there a particular one that's pushing it? The, the actual quality of the content itself or the the accessibility to Netflix that the whole world has now? What's going on there, Regina? Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, like, you know, disclaimer, like even though I work for Netflix, um, like I can't speak on behalf of Netflix. And sure. so like what I'm about to say is just my personal opinion. Um, but yeah, it's definitely both. Um, I mean, let's, you know, let's take Squid Game, for for example, if Squid Game had not been on Netflix, like, mm. would it have received the amount of attention that it got? Honestly, no, I, like, I don't think so. <laughs> I really don't think so. Because mm-hmm. like, where on what other platform could, you know, like, what other platform is, I would say, like, as ubiquitous as Netflix is, like, where else could you really watch a show, a Korean show, like Squid Game, almost anywhere in the world, you know, and yeah. Um, yeah, because, and uh, again, like, you know, Netflix, because, you know, once you log into Netflix, if there's a particular show that just got released and Netflix wants to push it in that market, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's like the first thing you see when you log in, right? After the um, to <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I, I think Netflix definitely, you know, played and is still playing a huge role. Um, and, you know, we're also seeing, um, 
like content from like you know other countries i think uh that are also becoming popular on netflix i mean obviously you had you know like uh money heist right yep um that was also popular on netflix so yeah like i i do think that like in netflix um is playing a huge role in i guess kind of like the globalization of content from uh you know countries outside of uh the west sure or yeah outside of the u.s i should say i watched um dark which is a german uh, drama on on Netflix and uh, there was no way I would find a German drama but I watched Dark it was this kind of weird mind-bending time travel thing I'm not sure if you've seen right. it but it's on my uh, watch list <laughs> <laughs> I need to get through all my k-dramas first it's and take, The Witcher it's oh, taken, I still have not seen The Witcher like oh my gosh I'm like the only person at Netflix <laughs> that's not seen The Witcher yet I'm like it's because I have to like make it through all these 16 episode k-dramas it's yeah it's hard i watched season one of the witcher and I, the the theme tune the song stuck in my head so much um my this is off topic but my brother-in-law at the moment he's watching he's korean he's watching game of thrones for the first time and as he's watching it he's asking me like in korean but he's asking me david is this this is this is in england right or this is scotland and he's trying to map it out as if it's real geography and real places and i'm you know working really hard to say no this is fantasy there's no dragons in england young oh, that's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, one of the advantages I think of Netflix is that the accessibility, as you've said, and it's there and then you can go down the rabbit hole. There's algorithms. We also see this on YouTube and things like that. Again, you can't speak for Netflix. Absolutely. But there's loads of advantages. Just on the flip side, quickly, is it possible that there might be some disadvantages? So by what I mean is that is it could it happen that the Korean dramas might lose what made them Korean? For example, generally they might be one season, they might be kind of romantic or saccharine, not always, but as they become more uh, catered for international tastes, is it possible that that international success could change them in some way? And in that some way might be, they might lose some of the things that made them so appealing in the first place. Did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and again, like I'm not speaking on behalf of Netflix, um, but you know, I I I feel like uh, lately, like we've seen a much more diverse, like uh, like more diverse forms of storytelling coming out of South Korea, hmm. and I want to say, you know, it's partly due to uh, platforms like Netflix, and I know, um, I mean, this is, you know, this is like. Uh, information that's like out there so you know it's not like confidential or anything but like mm -hmm. I mean uh, various Korean creators have said that like you know working with Netflix has afforded them a lots of creative freedom to like kind of bring their vision um, to a k-drama and to really like you know, shape the k-drama the way they want to and so I think that's you know one of the reasons why you what we've seen uh, like you know shows like Squid Game and mm. Hellbound that like you just you know, couldn't imagine a scene coming out of Korea, like even a few years ago. But at the same time, you still have, you know, lots of rom-coms and like sagoks that are still being produced. Um, personally, like, you know, I'm a fan of uh, crime dramas. Mm -hmm. And I know that's like another uh, trend that we've been seeing in K-dramas uh, in recent years. And so like, you know, I, I think it's, you know, great that we're just like seeing like, um, you know, much more diverse forms of storytelling coming out of South Korea. I think that's definitely true, and especially using um, 
the the webtoons is the content but yeah it gives much more freedom to to explore these whether they're in terms of horror or or, or sex or violence absolutely um, and and i'll just say one one more thing about squid yeah. game like you know yes like it's you know very different from a lot of the other k dramas that we've seen so far and you know i guess people could could argue that it's not very korean in some ways but at the same time i feel like i mean come on you know it like the games that they play are all like korean children's games yeah. right so it's korean yeah. in that sense also the 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 kind of like storytelling that you see uh you know uh, uh, like like based on like a uh, director huang's like vision for the drama right like for example the marbles episode where like people are crying it's like super emotional like a, a lot of american audiences felt that that was very fresh and original um whereas like i know like a lot of you know korean audiences are like oh it's too melodramatic it's you know total sure. shinta but like you know that i would say is like very korean you know like that that particular episode um, would not have been uh, told in the same way had it not been a Korean drama. And I think people appreciated that. Absolutely. Um, because there's all those face-ups, there's face-ups, there's all those close-ups of faces. Right. There's that emotion. That's what I always get with Korean dramas. There's just these long lingering shots of people's faces and you're meant to sort of, I don't know, infer the mood or the emotions that and you don't really often see that elsewhere. You actually, um, Regina, you actually interviewed uh, Director Huang, uh, Don Kyuk from Squid Game, which is a, a pretty cool thing. He's probably one of the hottest people in the year, in the world last year for what he did. Um, and what I noticed or what I was thinking about that like reading your interview with him and your article on him is that Squid Game was the creation of an individual with a vision, like with the writing, the directing, the characters, that marble episode that you've just touched on. So it wasn't made something by committee. But it was like the vision of an auteur, like you get mm. with uh, Bong Joon-ho or something like that. And did you see it that way? So it, it seemed to me like this was an individual that had this idea and Netflix allowed them to make it as they wanted rather than this kind of by committee or executive decision thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I mean... Yeah, like I, I definitely agree. And like, again, like if if we're talking about Squid Game in particular, you know, it was like written and directed by uh, uh, Hwang Dong-yuk. So it, yeah, it really was his vision. And like, um, I remember in my email interview with him, like mm -hmm. you could very much tell that like he was really like leading the direction of the entire show, like throughout and just really um, guiding uh, like all the actors on what, you know, what, what to do. So um yeah, like I, I think if, you know, if you have uh, any kind of show that's um, really led by like, you know, one or, you know, two people, then, you know, chances are that there'll be like fewer compromises, right? Mm -hmm. And and the storytelling will be tighter as a result. Um, and again, you know, like if, if you, if, if you're, if you're giving uh, this director like a lot of creative freedom, right to realize mm. his vision on screen then chances are like it will feel more authentic as well so yeah, yeah i definitely agree with you big fan of that authenticity and in individual visions we might not always like them but i i, I like you know <laughs> seeing people do yeah. that thing right we want that yeah um i i perhaps want to move on from dramas to to, to k-pop in a minute but before we do are there any dramas that you think people might be sleeping on that we haven't touched on or that you have thought were particularly good or 
or not good is there is there anything we've missed i know for example i've recently spoken about in the media snowdrop has been a huge controversy over here and then um the the woman with the red sleeve has been big popular historical drama are there any are there any ones that you've that you've seen or that you're looking forward to perhaps that we might not have covered well I mean, uh, all of us, so I guess like by the time, I, I don't know what's going to happen uh, by the time this episode airs, but like yeah. um, all of us are dead, just dropped on Netflix <laughs> today. Um, it's, well, it's uh, Friday, January 28th, my time. But, um, but anyway, like I have a feeling that that one is going to be a huge hit. I hope it will be a huge hit. Like I saw the screeners for it and like, I thought it was fantastic. Um, but again, like, you know, I'm, like I said before, like I'm a huge fan of crime dramas mm -hmm. and I mean I know that like what I'm about to mention was like popular in Korea but like I do wish that like um these dramas received more traction like outside of Korea and like especially in the U.S. but like mm -hmm. I will say like Stranger mm -hmm. for example with yeah. Peduna right and Oh Cho Sung Woo like that is still like you know one of um my favorite k-dramas of all time um Voice was also good I mean heck it was like renewed for four seasons in Korea right um Although like only the first two seasons are available on Netflix, but like I really liked that's I really liked that uh, crime drama as well. So yeah, those are my top two. Like oh, and uh, Chief of Staff, like the political Ooh. drama, I really love that one. Yeah, I love the first I season. I'm pretty of sure that. like most of your that's... listeners in Korea have like uh, seen all uh, all these, but <laughs> yeah, I really loved the first season of Bojagwan, that Chief of Staff. Um, yeah, yeah, Shin Minhyun, that was incredible, and and Berdunar's acting that you mentioned earlier she she's so good just tell me very quickly that the the netflix one that's dropping um i've already forgot i'm sorry when we're dead we're already dead we... all of us are dead all of us are dead um can you tell me anything about it I, i'm a bit behind the times like it's a zombie thing right but... yeah i mean they're describing it as like a teenage like coming of age drama it's a zombie thriller um and I like, it's really hard to talk about it without like revealing spoilers. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But I mean, I will say like, I'll, I will just say that like, I'm actually not a horror fan at all. Like I try to avoid horror as much as possible. Um, and so I was actually not even planning on watching this. Um, but because like, you know, this is like supposed to be like a, a huge K-drama that Netflix is dropping, like, and, and I write about K-dramas, like someone had to write about it or write <laughs> articles related to it. So I was like, okay, I'll watch it. And I did. And like, I actually watched it through to the end I mean I had to watch it with my mom to be honest because like it was it was scary yeah <laughs> but um like the the acting I mean most of the characters on the show are like you know they're high school students so, like they're very young but like wow. it's just amazing how how you know how like how good the acting is in general I thought and then like the zombie actors <laughs> did such a great job um like for some reason like I feel like Koreans are so great at uh like like creating like realistic zombies on screen like really scary you know yeah. like realistic zombies like the way they move and the way they run and chase you like it feels like you know they're it feels very realistic um so i really enjoyed it and then uh, of course like the whole like um emotional uh storytelling like that that was definitely a huge factor as well and I think that when people watch the drama they will see that like the whole like emotional aspect of the drama is one of the things that really sets it apart from say like Hollywood zombie thrillers mm. 
I'm I wonder soon there'll probably be a Netflix category like Korean zombie things because you've already got Train to Busan, you've got Kingdom, you've got Sweet Home. They do. Although I don't to... think a Train to Busan is available on Netflix. At least it's it's not in the U.S. But okay, yeah. okay, okay. But yes, like Kingdom is on uh, Netflix and yeah, and Alive as well. And you can read about them on Tudum. <laughs> I'm just going to keep hearing that now. Let's um, let, let's move on to if we can, um, K-pop because that's another thing that you've spent a lot of time writing about, uh, Regina. I only started hearing K-pop in about 2005, so I have that amount of experience. I think the first K-pop song I started listening to was like Hannah's Luxury, which was big over here at the time. Um, did you listen to a lot of? k-pop growing up were you a fan of particularly groups or idols did you have any posters on your wall or or were you listening to other things I, I what's what's your personal before we talk about like bands and things today you're writing what's your personal relationship to k-pop if you have one at all um i think i started listening to k-pop in like yeah like 2003 or so um when i started college um oh great like i'm dating myself <laughs> um but that's like that's when i started uh, listening to k-pop and i remember like uh some of the first k-pop artists i listened to were like boa mm -hmm. uh, pinkel i really liked pinkel um fly to the sky oh my gosh like they're still like one of my favorite like k-pop artists uh, of all time fly to the sky um but like i didn't really have like posters or anything like I, I think the only like artists that I've ever had posters up on the wall of were the Backstreet Boys <laughs> but that's also because like I was like in middle and high school then and you know that's when yeah you're going through that phase but like again like I didn't start listening to K-pop until I was in college and so yeah why <laughs> no I posters you weren't alone in having Backstreet Boys posters, I think, Regina. I think a lot of the world did at the time. They were huge, yes. weren't they? Um, why so late? Why did you not in middle school and high school? Why, like, why did you get into it in college? Was there a reason for that? Was it about accessibility? Was it about interest? Was it just? I want to say actually, like, it started with K dramas because, like, I started watching K dramas when I was in high school, like I think I was like either in my junior or senior year of high school. Hmm. And um, All About Eve was like one of the first K-dramas I saw. Mm -hmm. It's actually still one of my favorite K-dramas. Like I forgot to mention that one. Like I know it's it's a very old K-drama. So I don't, know, I don't even know if people can still watch it anymore. But um, if you can, like definitely watch it. Uh, but that's how I... That's how I first got introduced to K-pop because like Pinkul yep. is on their soundtrack. And I was like, oh my gosh, I really love this song. And and oh, so I guess it had to have been my senior year of high school because like when I went to college, like, mm. you know, I remember like, you know, researching uh, like Pinkul and then I found out about Boa and it just went from there. Yeah. The crossover effect is real then. And yeah. it, it, it's amazing, like you say, fly to the sky and all about it. Like the things that we get into when we're young, that they last, right? And so people that are getting into the K content, whether it's dramas or, or movies, music today, that's going to be the stuff that lasts for them. You know, it's like that mm. That first first cut is the deepest. Um, <laughs> for your... Yeah. For your top K-pop song of 2021, I was reading, you wrote about this and put it up. And 
there was a 54 song list and you only chose one and there was i guess lots of other people doing it so you were kind of limited in what you could choose matt maybe right to avoid clashing with other people but on that the top k-pop song of 2021 you wrote regina about uh, midnight by chancellor uh, featuring Gecko, and I hadn't heard of this song uh, until you recommended it on that list. So it's definitely got that retro synthwave sound, which is really hot, and it's got that French house. The vocoder reminds me of Daft Punk. Um, why, why this K-pop track? And considering it has just over a hundred thousand views, which is not to be sniffed at, but compared to the hundreds of millions elsewhere, why are people sleeping on this track? And and why did you choose it? Yeah, I chose it because, um, I mean, to be quite honest, uh, like, so, so like I have, you know, like, you know, multiple, um, people uh, from like PR firms and like record labels that I, you know, keep in touch with. Right. Um, mm -hmm. like, and occasionally they, they will like send me emails, like asking me like, Oh, like, are you willing to write about, you know, this K-pop artist? Um, and so one of the folks that I've been keeping in touch with is, uh, a record exec at, Warner Music Korea. Um, and, you know, he he was the one who actually told me about Chancellor and uh, his single Midnight. And I was like, oh, like, honestly, like, if I were to be completely honest, like, I didn't even know about Chancellor. Like, I didn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. I hate to admit it. Um, and so when I checked out his uh, music video, I was like, oh my gosh, like, this song is amazing. And like, the music video had all these, like, uh, you know, K-pop icons that I was familiar with, like mm -hmm. Taeyeon and Jeonjin from Shinwa and Yohan Kim. I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is so cool. Like, it was like flashback for me. Um, and, you know, it's just a very catchy song. And I too was shocked that like, um, you know, compared to a lot of other like K-pop artist music videos, mm. um, like the, the music video didn't have as many views. And I was like, oh my goodness, like people are missing out. Um, and, and so like, I thought, you know, by including this, uh, song that like, you know, maybe I'll get, you know, more people to, uh, watch the music video and listen to the song. Um, and, and I had my, I had actually made a promise, uh, with that, uh, Warner music exec. I was like, I told him, I was like, oh, like I love Chancellor and, uh, his new song Midnight. I definitely want to write about it. I will write mm. about it. And so like, I, you know, I, I, I felt like I had to keep that promise. Um, but you know, yeah, like I will say that like, you know, that like, I thought that was still like, you know, one of, um, the best uh, K-pop songs I heard last year. It's, it's a good track. Uh, it's a decent video as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was quite surprised. I, I was surprised by the difference between the quality of the product and the amount of attention it had got. I think that's what, because, you know, when I normally, that's real, still really surprising to me. And, um, you know, I've, yeah. I've always been a bit like weirded out by the fact that I'll look at the newspapers in Korea and, and they'll say like, ah, this week, Blackpink song has now 1.2 billion views. And then two weeks later, it'll be now that it has 1.3 billion views. And it's like the views themselves are the news, not the music, not the video, but the news itself is that number. And, yeah. you know, that number can be that a lot of that number is genuine. A lot of that number is like repeated plays and streaming parties and things. But that difference between views and quality was really surprising to me on that one. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, I think, you know, part of it, well, I can't really speak for uh, Koreans or, you know, people who are in Korea right now because I'm not there. But like uh, what I can say for uh, the U.S., at least, like based on my observations, is that 
Um, generally speaking, like it's usually like the K-pop idol groups that tend to do well in, mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, yeah, you know, groups of like, you know, four or sometimes even like seven or 11 members. Yeah. <laughs> like you just need like multiple K-pop artists in one group. And, and you know, like like those those kinds of like K-pop idols tend to do much better than like the solo artists for some reason. Why is that? Um, because like here, IU is huge. Park Yo Shin yep. at the moment, Lee Young Ji, but it, abroad it seems to be the the groups of large members. And I've read different articles about why that is, and it's all academic or it's like Orientalism and things. But what's your take on that? Uh, what's your opinion? Why is it the groups that are popular and not the not the individuals? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a a clear answer for that, but like just based on like my own observations, I, I feel like, you know, part of it has to do with, obviously, you know, if, if it's an idol group, like you have multiple people. So like everyone will have at least one bias, right? Like one, yeah. one member that they're particularly drawn to. Mm. Um, and also if you look at a lot of the idol groups, like, you know, they're all like uniformly good looking, right? Yeah. And they can dance well, you know, their choreography is on point and they also tend to have like very, uh, you know, slickly produced music videos. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, like, you know, many of the solo artists also have like, you know, very well produced music videos. But I just feel like, you know, you just have like more people to choose from in a group, simply speaking. It's the Backstreet Boys all over again, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's that thing. Um... Or the Spice Girls. <laughs> Ginger Spice. I, I was the Ginger Spice fan when I was. Oh, I like Baby Spice. <laughs> there was we all we all have our bias. How um how how deep do you think K-pop goes, Regina? And by what what I mean by that is in, in your piece for L, you were looking at artists that didn't always get the spotlight, and so it's easy to write about sort of BTS or Blackpink or Esper these days. But you know, you tried to to go a little bit more into the weeds, as it were. Um. How deep do you think K-pop goes? Is there depth to the genre or is there a problem of oversaturation, difficulty in standing out? And what's, you know, if you're doing something completely different like Dreamcatcher, then then you get that element of it. But how? what's the depth of quality in K-pop, do you think? Um, I mean, again, like... I. I this is this is a complex question to answer mm. because also it's like how do you even define k-pop and like i know that's like a whole nother conversation right but how like, do you define it by the way how do you define k-pop oh. <laughs> um gosh like i just have like multiple definitions like floating around in my mind and like i mean really the shortest answer the shortest answer that i can give you is like it just depends on like who i'm talking with <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a horrible yeah, yeah. answer, but I um, yeah, yeah. And and to be quite honest, like I don't really listen to the kind of K-pop that is popular outside of Korea nowadays. I mean, I, you know, like if I'm writing a piece about some K-pop artists, like you know, I will check out some of their songs, but like I don't really regularly listen to a lot of the K-pop songs that are popular nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, although like, I will say that BTS is probably an exception. <laughs> I have grown to really love their music, but um, like like the kind of K-pop that, you know, I grew up listening to, like, again, Fly to the Sky, mm-hmm. uh, you know, TVXQ or like Dongbang Shinki. Right. Um, it, they just sounded like very different from, you know, the K-pop artists that are uh, very popular nowadays. And so, mm-hmm. um, 
<laughs> I'm just trying to like figure out figure out how to say this without like you know sounding offensive but you know how like we've heard a lot of um people saying that like there seems to be kind of like this overall like homogenization of popular music around the world like I know even like some uh, American artists have like come out and said that mm -hmm. but you know I, I I do feel like that's the case with uh, both American and Korean pop music nowadays. Mm. Um, it, it, when it comes to, you know, K-pop, um, to be quite honest, like, it, you know, sometimes I, I, I feel like, you know, there's almost like a new group coming out every week. Yeah. And who knows, like, maybe there is. You know, like, I think I, I remember reading like one article that said like something like 200 K-pop groups debuted in one year or something. Mm -hmm. They're just like way too many nowadays to keep track of. Right. And, um, you know, I do like kind of yearn for like simpler times. <laughs> like, but um, so, yeah, like, I know I'm not really answering your question, but um, I mean, if you're talking, if you're talking about, um, for example, like, like actor musician yeah, as right. being a k-pop mm -hmm. artist i love them you know mm -hmm. like to like i would normally consider them as k-pop as well but you know they're like one of those artists who for some reason are just not really popular uh in many places outside of korea i mean they're definitely not popular in the u.s like very few people in the u.s have heard of them which i think you know is really unfortunate um so if you're including artists like angmyu uh, mm -hmm. and IU in K-pop, then, I mean, yes, like, I think there could definitely, there is a lot of depth, but that's why I'm like, it's hard for me to answer that question because, like, it depends on, like, how you define K-pop. And, like, if I were to, like, talk about Akmu with uh, many folks in America, they'd be like, what, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Akmu are great because they write their own stuff and they're always changing and, and they fabulous musicians, voices as well. Their last, um, their last EP, like, six, seven track EP, I thought was just really 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 good um you mentioned this kind of homogenization of music not just uh k-pop but american music i'm not sure if you've heard this uh the work of mark fisher but i'll just give it to you very quickly because i've used it in some of my writing recently and research and mark fisher was a british sort of music cultural critic um, no longer with us but he had this thought experiment and if you've watched back to the future you'll get it but he sort of said that music has stopped right the music stopped in the 2000s and the way he explained it is he said that if you got music from the 1950s let's just talk western music for now but if you got music from the 1950s took it back to the 20s the people in the 20s would go what is this it's too loud this is rock and roll we're used to jazz right music's become louder and noisier and it's worse and then if you went to the 70s and you got all that kind of like rock heavy metal black sabbath led zeppelin and you took that back to the 50s people would go oh my god this is ridiculous we don't understand it then you mm. get the invention of hip-hop turntables you get the synthesizers right technological huge breakthroughs you take it back 20 years people don't get it i think if and he would he argued that if you took music from today back to you know 2000 people mm -hmm. would get it they would just go yeah this is it's still well on john it's dua lipa doing funk it it, it it's ed sheeran it's Coldplay. but there's been no change technological genre uh in music for like the last 20 years and so the change now is it's just uh, and i don't say this disrespectfully the change now is the identity of the people doing it rather than the music itself. So we still get the mm. pop, but now we get, let's say, Asian people doing it or Korean people doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, like I think I kind of have to agree. 
um it's yeah i mean like i like i don't want to offend any you know like hardcore k-pop fans out there but but you know again like you know in, in some sense like i consider myself to be a k-pop fan but like i'm a fan of like the first and second generation k-pop artists so but that's just my personal taste yeah everyone has taste I, and i think it's important to talk about our tastes or our thoughts and our feelings i've always found it interesting that you know uh, sometimes we might talk about politics or economics or movies and everyone has their opinions, but it's hard to talk about sometimes K-pop, you know, critically that, that always mm. seems difficult. Keep going on this then perhaps like my kids love Esper. Um, my kids are six and seven, but they, they love Esper. They do all the dance moves and this kind of stuff and sing the songs. Um, they're doing this kind of metaverse, NFT, digital realms, avatars um buying stuff online what's your take on this as the future of k-pop i know you're a second generation person so it might be hard to get into but is k-pop going online are we going to see a sea change from youtube to to metaverses is it just a fad do you understand it what's what's your take on this part of it uh do i understand it honestly like i don't know if i do but um uh you know, I, I think there is a lot of potential there, but like just based on, you know, like um, the reporting that I've done, the research that I've done, I think like one of the potential, I, I think like one of the important things that uh, these, you know, K-pop uh, agencies have to keep in mind is you can't get too complicated with the storytelling or like the terminology. So like, for example, when I was writing that MTV news article about ESPA, mm. um, it was actually commissioned to me by one of the MTV news editors. And that's why I actually wrote it. Um, I had no idea about like the whole like SM universe until I started doing research for the article. And then I just quickly realized like, oh my gosh, like what are all these terms that are mm -hmm. being used? Like Hangya and like sync and recall and what what is or who is novice you know I, I started having all these questions and I was like I have to like you know do research on this and and um and initially you know I start I remember I started uh, uh like uh, looking up like English language articles and like many of them were just like confusing and contradictory and I was like okay like you know I'll try searching Korean language articles so, like maybe you know like these Korean journalists will understand something that we don't and it was the same thing. Like, actually, I felt like some of the Korean language articles that I came across, like, it, it felt like the journalists were even more clueless than some of the American journalists. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, so, you know, I, I honestly, like, tried my best to understand uh, what all those terms meant. And um, I, I tried to kind of, like, go into the whole, like, I don't know, like, mythology. But to be quite honest, like, it was very challenging. And I think that could be a, a, a potentially major impediment uh, for, you know, people trying to, like, understand this whole, like, SM universe. So, like, I, I think they just need to, like, like, just simplify the terminology and just, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, just <laughs> sometimes, like, you know, creating a complicated metaverse is not, is not the answer. <laughs> I, I agree with you, but we might be in the minority. I mean, these these record oh, companies, yeah. they, they know what we're doing. Maybe the young kids get it. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting one to see that they are going online. And I, I'm still unsure who novice is or how this all works. Um, I mean, I think I eventually like figured most of it out. But again, it just took a lot of digging. And so like the question mm -hmm. is like, you know, how many of these 
fans and potential fans are willing to do all that digging. Sure. My my six, seven-year-old kids don't care about that. They just want to see the hear the song. Okay. <laughs> daddy, daddy, next level, please. Okay, okay. Um when I I want to talk about the Hallyu trend in, in in this K-pop thing, um in terms of its longevity. So now I know that you can't speak for all of Netflix, and I know also that you don't have a crystal ball. If you do, please give me the lottery numbers. But in terms of looking forward, different people I speak to have different ideas on how long this huge cultural global phenomenon is going to last. And so, for example, Igutak told me, um, Professor, he told me that it's going to go from strength to strength. It's going to get bigger um, platforms streaming more international. And then I spoke to um, Professor Kwon Jung-min, and she said, well, it was it used to be Hong Kong, and then it was Japan, now it's Korea. And, and so she believes it's going to pass on in, in a few years. Um, so there's lots of different opinions, and nobody really knows. But what do you see in the future for, for Hallyu, for these this Korean music and drama phenom phenomenon? And do your heart and your head tell you different things? Or, or how does this play out going forward, Regina? I mean, I think like at least in the near future, like uh, this whole Hallyu phenomenon is going to continue to grow, uh, like across the globe. Um, and I say that because, like you know, as you know, like you know, I, I feel like like Koreans are all about quality. Like they really care about quality. They really care about like every single detail. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like. They're, they're always like trying to innovate, which is great, you know, and um, I, I, I feel like, you know, one of the reasons why Hallyu has become as big as it is today is that like Koreans, like the people, like the Koreans who are involved in the entertainment industry, I, I feel like a lot of them are, you know, willing to to see what's out there and like learn from other cultures and like pick up on the latest trends and and, you know, I imagine that they will continue to do that going forward. And like, as long as they continue to do that, and as long as like, and, and you know, obviously like when it comes to like Korean films and K-dramas, I mean, like they're like, they, they've always had like such great storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I can't imagine that like, you know, that that kind of like powerful emotional storytelling is going to end in the future so as long as like I think Koreans can maintain that when it comes to like Korean film and uh k-dramas and continue you know trying to innovate and and learn from um the latest trends and other cultures like I think we'll continue to see the Hallyu phenomenon grow mm -hmm. and with k-pop like I mean I think they're constantly uh, innovating as well so I mean, I don't know if or when it's going to end. I hope it's going to like continue to grow. But like, I'll also say that like, I really do hope to see, you know, not just like Korean content, but like content from like other countries, like, you know, uh, continue to do uh, better or like, you know, uh, as well as um, Korean content. Because like, you know, I feel like the more diverse stories we we share and, and the more diverse stories that we uh like hear about like the better right like it, it it enriches all of us so yeah i completely agree with that i i think the more 
uh, unique and individual stories and sounds and, and, and concepts and words and, and visuals that we get, the better it is, which is why mm -hmm. I think that sort of like homogenization is a bit, it's a bit boring, you know, it, it's nice yeah. and it, it, it's safe, but prefer to get that difference. I, I think that's really good. Um, if we move from K-pop then to another, th this third topic that you've written about in a couple of your pieces, which I, I also think is important. You meant, and, and that's, and, and I hope I get the words right. So please correct me if I, if I misstep. Um, you write about race and identity. And in May last year, you wrote an incredibly powerful piece for L, which you already referenced saying you can't stand Korean entertainment without also standing up against anti-Asian racism. And in that piece, Regina, you asked the question directly, how is it possible that when Asians are finally starting to be seen as cool and hip in the West, we're also being brutally attacked and even killed on a regular basis, often in broad daylight? Was this a difficult piece to write for you? Did you get much response to it? Can you help us unpack that piece for us, please? Yeah. Um... Yeah, like I, like I mentioned before, like, you know, um, I want to say it was probably my most popular, like definitely one, one of my most popular pieces that I've written. Um, and yeah, like the response was like overwhelming. But I will say that uh, that piece was actually uh, commissioned to me by a couple of the L editors, like they were looking for someone uh, of Asian descent to was knowledgeable about um, Korean pop culture. And like, actually, around that time, I was like, uh, like working, starting to work on um, that uh, L, L piece about the history of K-dramas. And so like, because I was already in contact with them, they're like, hey, can you like, you know, write this op-ed? And they basically like, you know, told me what the topic would be. And I was like, like, to be quite honest, like initially I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know if I can write about this, you know, it's just going to be like too painful. And, um, and I honestly didn't really know what to write at the time. Like, how do you, you know, how do you tackle such mm -hmm. a complex and, you know, painful topic? Um, but I did, you know, I, I felt like, I, I felt like I had a responsibility, right? Because like, if I wasn't going to write it, like, I don't know who else is going to write it. Um, and, you know, like, I don't even know if the editors at the time, like, really knew who else to reach out to. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll write it. Um, and I just like, just started like jotting down some like, you know, random ideas and, and, and feelings that I had just, um, you know, based on my own experiences of like observing, um, anti-Asian racism, even here in New York city, like, uh, I mean, during the pandemic, like I, I would hear stories about, um, like people of Asian descent just getting brutally attacked right here in New York city, you know, mm. which is supposed to be like, you know, one of the most diverse and cosmopolitan cities in the world. And yet like you hear and you see Pete, like, well, I mean, I didn't see anyone like personally, but like, mm. I know people like even my mom who's like, you know, seeing uh, witness like people um, who were hurt. Um, so it, yeah, it, it was, um, it was, it was definitely uh, uh, like one of my more painful pieces to write. Mm. Um, and and in, in the beginning, it was just like, I was just word vomiting onto a page. And then I think somehow like in within like a day or so, I just like started like fiercely like connect, like like writing down uh, like full sentences. And it just like kind of came to me. It was, it was weird. It was like this really like weird experience. Like once I had, when, once I had jotted down like some, you know, feelings and emotions that I had, 
I was like, how am I going to like, you know, write this into a coherent op-ed? Mm-hmm. And, and then I just like, it just somehow happened. It's weird. Like, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why do you think it resonated so much? Like, why do you think it got the response that it did? Because you said it was, you know, perhaps the piece that, what was it, do you think? I mean, you know, like, it, it was it was interesting because um, when I shared that piece on my social media and, and you know, I have to be honest, like, I don't really have many social media followers. Um, but like, for some reason, like, when I uh, shared that, like, on my LinkedIn, and like, I think my Twitter as well. And um, I mean, I saw people like, I saw like notable Asians and Asian Americans liking and sharing my post, like mm. my, my article. Mm. And even like, and, and you know, like I didn't know any of them personally, but like some of them even like, you know, DM'd me and was like, thank you so much for writing this piece. Like it's, it, it, it felt like, you know, we were all kind of, you know, as Asians and Asian Americans, like we were all kind of like feeling the same kinds of emotions, but like, I don't know how many of us how many of us felt comfortable like writing about them mm-hmm. and how many of us were actually allowed to like you know write about our, our emotions. Um, and so I guess again, like I <laughs> sometimes I look back on that piece and like, um, yeah, like I like I have to say like I I was proud of it because I just you know, just because like I've received like such um positive response from mm-hmm. like responses from different people, but um, I guess, like, I was somehow able to, like, encapsulate, like, all the different uh, emotions and experiences that many of us Asian Americans were experiencing during mm-hmm. that time. And, and and some of us are still experiencing now because, like, you still see some, you know, some uh, instances of, um, like, attacks happening against Asian Americans here, unfortunately. It was a... I can only speak from my experience. But it was a very powerful piece, and I, I could see how it, it resonated across uh, not just social media, but people's lives, as you've said, and how they would contact you. In that article, Regina, you, you quoted uh, Susan Lee, the writer, saying that um, it's possible the obsession with K dramas and K pop has actually made some people more racist because they think they understand being Korean, so they get a pass on racist thoughts and tendencies. When I read that, that that kind of stuck out to me because, you know, it, it seems a little bit contradictory. You would imagine that it goes the other way, that the more Korean content becomes popular, the more representation, awareness, the reduction of ignorance. But this was suggesting that it sort of becomes easier to talk about them in perhaps non-polite or offensive ways. What was, what was your take on that idea, uh, Regina, from Susan Lee? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, when she, when she wrote that, I was like, oh, like, my initial reaction was like, yeah, that just seems like kind of counterintuitive. But then Mm. she actually wrote that in response to um, a tweet that was shared by, uh, you know, this famous novelist, uh, Korean American novelist named Aro Kwon. Mm -hmm. And she had like shared screenshots of like, what um, I guess uh, this person professing to be like a, an elderly white lady um, who likes Korean pop culture and watches Korean dramas. Like she basically like wrote to uh, Aro Kwon and she like, 
she said some like very strangely like stereotypical things about uh, Koreans and just very like racist things Mm -hmm. about Koreans. It was just, it was a very like strange message. And throughout her message, she also said how much she loved Korean culture. And she's like, oh, like I'm not racist. I can't be racist because hey, like I watch K-dramas all the time. Um, So, so, you know, that like there was proof right there, right? Mm -hmm. That like, what Susan said, uh, it could very well, uh, in fact, be true. Um, and I thought, like, I've thought about that, like, ever since, you know, <laughs> I, I came across those tweets. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, I, like, I want to, I want to say, and like, I would like to think that, you know, uh, because Korean uh, culture has um, become so popular across the globe and uh, like more recently in the U.S. as well. Like I would like to think that it's opened up people's minds and people have become more accepting and appreciative of like not just Korean culture, but like, you know, people of Korean descent. Mm. Um, But at the same time, like, you know, sometimes I wonder if some of these people are just like so fascinated with and obsessed by Korean or like a fascinated by and obsessed with Korean culture because it's like some some sort of like fetish that they have. Um, you know, I, I wonder about that because like, you know, I, I look at some of these um, like K-drama fans, for instance, and like, you know, some of them, like I can tell are like, you know, just like very genuinely curious and interested. But then, you know, sometimes I wonder like, you know, like, is it, is it a fetish that they have? Like, I don't know, (laughs) you know, like, I I don't want to like offend, you know, any like uh, Korean pop culture fans. Like, I don't want to pass any judgment either, but you know, it it is, it is very interesting. And, um, you know, whether I've seen some of these people like, you know, be racist at the same time and arbor stereotypes, personally, no, I haven't. Like that, that instance, like that I mentioned in my L article, like was really like the only instance that I came across. Hmm. But then I remember like people were like, you know, reaching out to me on Twitter saying like, oh yeah, like I've seen this happen. So yeah. (laughs) So like, if they say that, like, I'm pretty sure yeah, it happens. You, you mentioned fetishization. I've, I've had people suggest that to me that there is that element of it, that there is, that does go on. I'd, we could get into Ollie London and things like that, but let's 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 skip on because at, yeah. the, end, <laughs> at the at the end of your piece, at the end of that piece, you 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 start to give concrete suggestions on on what people could do to to help the community, but to help themselves. And you suggest reading more history, listening more, speaking up, and an introspect. Um, since you wrote that piece six months ago, do you think there's been any change? Are things getting better, worse? Did they stay the same? Or how has your view changed since you wrote that uh, to now, Regina? Yeah, um, I mean, overall, like I hate to say this, but like I think things have pretty much stayed the same. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to, uh, you know, like combating um, anti-Asian racism, at least in the US, like I haven't really seen that much uh, progress. And I mean, you know, a a large part of it is because like Asian Americans are such a small minority in the US. And it also doesn't doesn't help that, you know, we're all, we're we're definitely not a monolith, right? And we all have different cultures. We all speak different languages. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
like the Chinese, like even here where I live in New York City, like in, in Flushing, um, there's a huge Korean population and there's also a very huge uh, Chinese population. And like the communities like don't really mingle either. You know, it's like, I mean, like it's really hard because like we don't even speak the same language. Mm-hmm. So it's so to start off, like you have, you know, Asian Americans making what I think is like maybe six or seven percent of the U.S. And then within that six or seven percent, you have all these different communities who speak different languages who can't communicate with each other. So it's just really hard to have like the same level of solidarity that you might see with, for example, like African-Americans. Right. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's a large, that's, that's a core reason why we have not really seen that much change. Um, I mean, that said, you know, like I have seen a lot of uh, like Asian Americans, like, uh, you know, coming out into the streets and like protesting. But again, like we just don't really have the numbers. Mm -hmm. I hate to say that. Um, and, And I think like, you know, there's still, there's still very much like this whole model minority myth. I mean, you know, ever since this uh, wave of um, anti-Asian uh, attacks have started, like, I mean, I think, you know, more people in the U.S. have become aware of how harmful this model minority myth is. But like, there's still so many, you know, like, so many people out there that, um, you know, feel like Asians don't really have any problems. Like everything is okay with the Asian American community. Like we're all doing well. We're all like, you know, very well off. And, uh, and, and we, and oftentimes like, you know, there are many, um, there are many people who don't treat Asian Americans as a minority. Like they don't think we're a minority. So it's really hard to have our uh, voices heard even today. Um, yeah. And, and to be quite honest, like, it's also one of the reasons why I'm contemplating a possible move to South Korea sometime in the future. You'd be more than welcome. Let's have coffee if you come. Uh, can I just ask you um, uh, about the model minority uh, myth that you've mentioned? Because it's not something that I see written about much in the Korean language press here in Korea. Or so perhaps I'm not as well. <clears throat> I'm not as well versed in it. But can you perhaps just try to unpack it a bit for me and like how prevalent it is? I mean, oh my gosh, it just has like so many different components to it that like, I think if you were to actually try to explain what it is, uh, you could take an entire, you could devote an entire like hour long episode to talking about the model minority myth. And like, I know there are lots of podcasts who have uh, tackled this topic, but like, I mean, to me, you know, I would say that like part of the model minority myth here in the US is that um, there's this kind of like stereotype of Asian Americans as being like, you know, like, uh, like very like, you know, good mannered, polite, quiet, hardworking uh, model citizens, you know, we're like, you know, good people that don't cause any trouble, we just like, you know, keep our heads down and just, you know, just do our work. Um, We, you know, we don't, we don't speak up. And, and, you know, I feel like sometimes like there is some truth to it, like, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I think part of it has to do with like Asian cultures and like the way that many of us uh, are raised, um, you know, like our, many, for many of us living in the States, you know, our um, Asian parents will tell us like, oh, just, you know, um, 
just like just just focus on your work you know study hard go to a good school and then like once you graduate like you know you'll get a good job and just like just you know do your job you know just be hard working and like you'll be successful and you know that's oftentimes like not the case in the U.S. right um you have to really you have to like speak up sometimes and you know here it's like it's very much feel like you know the squeaky wheel gets the grease right <laughs> like that's how people get promoted and so like when you actually look across corporate America for example um not that many people know this but actually, like Asian Americans are the least likely to be promoted in the U.S., even though many of us are well educated. Mm. Right. Um, mm. Many of us like, you know, do work for uh, like reputable companies, but still like many of us are at like the junior level or like the mid manager level. Like very few of us are, you know, at the senior level um, or at, like at the executive management level. Like you'll see, like even mm. to this day, it's really hard to find Asian Americans who are like you know, at the C-suite level. And, and, and all of that is, you know, partly due to this whole model minority myth. Like people just expect us to like keep our heads down, not complain, mm-hmm. right? And, but if you don't speak up, if you don't, you know, if you don't, if you, yeah, like if you don't like at least, you know, raise trouble sometime or like, you know, like, like <laughs> um, you know, point, like, like just make people aware of like, you know, some of the um, you know, issues uh, that you have to deal with. And like, you're not, people are not going to pay attention to you, yeah. you know, and um, that's part of the model minority myth. And because like, I guess like so many of us, um, well, like, I want to say like, there's this perception in America that, you know, many Asian Americans are wealthy um, because many of us like go to like very prestigious schools. Um, they think like as a whole, like, you know, Asian Americans, um like don't have any struggles like like so and so like you know uh like americans don't really need to pay attention to asian americans because like you know we have all of our like we don't have any problems like everything is fine and dandy for us and that's also not 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 true right because um like for example even here in new york city like we have like tons of undocumented asian immigrants um, and e- even the ones that are documented, you still have a ton of Asian Americans who are living below the federal poverty line. Um, but it's like they're almost kind of invisible. Like people don't really talk about that. Uh, the media definitely doesn't really talk about that. Um, and and if you also look at you know uh, like different uh, groups of Asian Americans, like for example, especially like. Uh, you know, like Lao or like Cambodian Americans, like many of them are also, you know, on average, like not as better off as like some of the more affluent uh, Asian American groups, like, you know, Indian Americans or Chinese Americans or Korean Americans. So like, there's just like, so basically like, I know this is a lot. (laughs) I don't know if I did a good job of like explaining it, but like, that's why like this whole model minority myth is just such a complex topic Mm -hmm. that needs to be addressed, right? with nuance but it's it's something that just doesn't really get covered that much in media at least in mainstream media and i feel like it's usually like you know asian americans <laughs> who have to talk about this mm-hmm. so it's yeah <laughs> you've definitely made me think about it more seriously because uh, i must confess it's not something that i've heard about much so it's good that you've brought it not just to my attention but to other people's attention you you said regina that um 
you felt that not much had changed in the past six months since you wrote your article and and the way that that manifests with these stereotypes of the model minority myth what would you like to see change or what could people do that would bring about that change if you know what i mean so you said that nothing nothing's really happened you wrote this piece and you gave some suggestions but since that there hasn't been that much movement what would you like to see happen or what could people do that would bring about actual change oh um <laughs> yeah, that's like another hard question. I'm not sure if that's harder or easier than to define K-pop, but it, it, it's a question. Yeah, I mean, again, like, well, okay, for starters, you know, I, like, I really, like, I really wish that, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I really wish that um, the government, like the, the U.S. government would, um, and, and I think, you know, especially with the current Biden administration, like, um, like they are like, you know, paying more attention to uh, some of the problems that are commonly faced by um, Asian American communities. But I think there definitely like needs to be um, more attention paid to like some of the the unique problems that many Asian American communities uh, face. And for starters, like I don't think uh, a lot of these issues that are that, that are um, I would say like unique to Asian American communities are very well understood outside mm -hmm. of this communities. Like for example, I mean I remember you know like I remember like when uh, you know people when uh, local elections were taking place um, in New York and like you had like different candidates who were like you know talking about their uh, their uh, proposed policy changes and whatnot and. I mean, when this whole question of like, okay, what would you do to address, um, you know, Asian hate crimes that are happening in the U.S. Like, none of them really had a good answer. And like, I know that like it's a very difficult topic, but like, even just having, uh, first of all, just like having conversations, right, with different members of the Asian American communities, and really, you know, trying to understand uh, some of their daily struggles. Um, I think. I think even like, you know, like those kinds of efforts are not really um, being done uh, in many cases. Like they just like assume that like, oh, there's like this language barrier. Um, it, it's just like very easy for, I think even today for uh, many Americans to just, you know, see an Asian face and just like automatically treat, you know, that Asian American person or like that Asian person um, as other, right? Mm -hmm. um, like Asian Americans are just like so used to being othered and dehumanized. Um, you definitely saw that with, um, you know, like the Atlanta area spa shootings that happened last year, right? I mean, just mm -hmm. look at like the way that uh, American media covered it. Um, you, you know, if they had just like made an effort to like, you know, approach some of the members of the local uh, Korean American community in Atlanta, um, and it's crazy because like, I remember like in the beginning, like there were so many like Korean American journalists who spoke Korean, who wanted to go and cover the story. And like, you know, for some reason, like they weren't allowed to do that, at least initially. So you yeah, have to kind of wonder like, hmm, what's going on there, right? Um, but I, I think that's, you know, one of the first things that needs to be addressed is like, you know, how do you reach out to these local communities and talk to them to figure out like, you know, what their challenges are? 
because like there's just like no even now like there isn't really a widespread understanding of some of the you know daily challenges that many Asian Americans face you know Um, there are many of us who are undocumented again like many of us who both undocumented and documented who are uh, very poor we're living below the federal poverty line for various reasons that I won't get into Um, and and another thing that I would like to see happen is like more mutual understanding between specifically like the Asian American and the African American communities because I mean these two communities have so many similarities we have so many shared struggles Mm. but like I feel like especially the media the mainstream media like tends to kind of divide us or want to divide us and there's these like you know various narratives that are being pushed out where uh, it's almost like you know they're pitting like African-American communities against Asian American communities. And so like, um, I mean, for many, for many years, right? Like there's, there've been so many like misunderstandings between these two communities for again, like for various reasons, but like there's so many, like we share so many commonalities. And so just um, I would say like figuring out different ways to like bring these two communities together in solidarity. Like, I mean, I do see some of that happening, especially with like the younger generations, like, well, <laughs> like with the millennial generations and like with the, uh, with the Gen Z's generation. Um, and, you know, I, I but I, I feel like there's a lot more that can be done mm-hmm. because like, I see a lot of like finger pointing and just, you know, blaming the other, but if you really, you know, look at our histories and look at, you know, some of the challenges that both of our communities face, like, yeah, like there, there are a lot of like shared struggles there. I, I think it's really important. I mean, I'll be like, I'll, can I just like give yeah, like yeah. one example? And I, I don't know, maybe this might be like very uh, foreign to a lot of your listeners if they're based in Korea, but like, you know, in America, for example, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about like uh, police reform, right? Um, and especially like within the African American community, um, you know, there is a lot of distrust between uh, like ordinary like African American citizens and the police, right? Mm. And they think like, oh, like you know, all you know Asian Americans are like you know, like they, like they wouldn't they wouldn't support this cause or you know they they would probably the first be the first ones to like you know call the police and, and whatnot blah blah but I mean like for example like where I live in Flushing here in Queens like there are like also many like Asian Americans who um, don't really trust the police either because you know just for various reasons like um, and I don't you know like and, and like I'm not trying to like you know um, like criticize or like I'm not trying to be like dismissive of the police and like I know like I know that there are many police officers here in the U.S. who are you know honorable and you know like hardworking and you know they do a great job but like it's just like you know I'm just saying like you know that's like one of the um, issues where I think like there's a lot of overlap between the African-American and Asian-American communities that like people just aren't really aware of. I think the talking part is really important and, you know, sort of actual having conversations, you said, not just uh, making policies or things like that. I've often 
come to understand that it's important to talk to people rather than talk about people. It's very easy to talk about groups and, and to label people, but to actually talk to people uh, or listen to people, talk with people uh, plays a great role. And that idea of um, uh, politicians or, or media or people dividing, uh, I, I think, does take place because that reinforces the current power in the systems, you know, by keeping people separate from each other. Um, Sorry, can I just add like one more thing? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> mm. um, on this topic, like, you know, I, I like I did, I honestly did not like expect to like be talking about like because it's a very sensitive topic, right? Like in now. the US. Mm. Um, but, uh, it's going back to like the media, right? And um, I mean, I don't know how much of this gets shown like in Korea or like really like anywhere outside of the US, but like here in the US, you know, you will see um, for example, like the media showing like, you know, African-Americans like uh, being the perpetrators of like many of these like um, anti-Asian hate crimes. And like right now there, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, Asian-Americans who, you know, feel like, you know, oh, like, you know, it's, it's mostly like the African-Americans who are like attacking us. But again, like you know, to me, I feel like that's kind of like, the narrative that you know like some of these media outlets like to push out because mm -hmm. you know if you look online and even just you know based on what i've heard from you know people uh living like various people living in my neighborhood you know it's like a lot of these anti-asian hate crimes are you know also, like are also being com com uh, committed by you know like uh, white people or like you know Hispanic people not just like African-Americans it's just mm -hmm. like you don't really see a lot of that like in mainstream media so people anyway so it's yeah I could like <laughs> I could do like a whole nother um, discussion on this topic but um, I know it's kind of like controversial and um, it might it might make make some people feel uncomfortable but like you just yeah, you, you just have to be aware, especially here in the US, so like what you see in the media is not the entire truth, right? So. I agree with that. And the coverage in South Korea was very much as you described it there. That was, you know, um, Korean media is not monolith and, and they all have different things, left and right biases, but the, the general mainstream television and print news was as you described it. So Cause it's so much easier uh, for these mainstream media outlets to pit two minority groups against each other. Right. Um, I, if you look at like who dominates, um, you know, a lot of these mainstream outlets, you know, it's yeah, it, it's Caucasians. Right. And sorry, like, like I, I know you're Caucasian, so like, you know, I don't mean to like, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's a weird topic for me to uh, talk about, but no, no, it's just like the, the whole complexity of, you know, race relations. I mean, no matter, you, you know, no matter like, you know, what race or ethnicity you are, like, you know, every race, you know, has its good and bad people, right? It's as simple as that, right? So it's just, I, I guess basically what I'm trying to say is that like, I don't want people to just like, generalize about entire race of people based on what you see in the media you know mm. um again you know if you if you take the whole example of the atlanta spa area uh, the, sorry the atlanta area spa shootings that mm. happened uh last march um you know that was where you know uh, this uh this lone white man just like gunned down um all these people uh, mostly asian women right um what happened right like the media and the police like kind of almost sided with uh, the suspect, with the perpetrator. 
I mean, he, he, he just came out and said like, oh, like, you know, I was having a bad day. And they just like took it. They just like took it. I mean, they just like took his word at face value. Mm. So that just like goes to show. I mean, I, I think that's like, you know, one striking example of how like it's just so easy for I think like the media and also for law enforcement to really like control the narrative, you know, if like sometimes I wonder like, you know, if the perpetrator were like say a black person, you know, like, would they, like, would, would the sheriff have come out and said, oh, like, you know, let's cut him some slack because he was just having a bad day, you know, like, no, like that would not have happened. But that suspect was able to get away with saying that, I think, because he was a white man and because, you know, the sheriff, well, I mean, later on, they also found that the sheriff was racist because like he uploaded some um, like racist posts on his Facebook, I believe. So, yeah, I just that's why you just have to like question everything that you see in the media. Well, if we look at that perhaps more systemic thing, because throughout this interview, Regina, you've told me, and even with the um, you can't stand Korean entertainment without standing up against anti-Asian racism, you said these pieces were commissioned to you. So obviously it happens that what we as readers see in the media, a lot of it is being commissioned. It's being directed, right? For, for good or for bad, whether it's please write about this group, please do this. How do you think that plays not just in terms of Hallyu, but not just terms of of race and media narratives and division? How do you think that plays across more broadly this idea of people commissioning work and, and, and telling people to write certain things? Um, I mean, are we sorry? Are we are we trying to like tie this into like what I was just talking about, or no, what I'm trying to ask is? Um, the narratives are created and created by who I'm trying to ask. And, and is it just, um, it's not just in terms of race, but it's even more broader because the reason I ask, actually, this is the honest mm -hmm. reason I ask, I don't get people commissioning me work, right? So I just write what I want. I have a column I can write and, and it's free. So I'm kind of, I was curious about what it would be like the experience of having to be commissioned to write about for example, race, the, the anti-Asian racism, or how does that play into it at all? Does, does it, or it's not connected? Um, well, I, like, I, I can say that, like, uh, the pieces where I, you know, talk about race, like, out of all the pieces that I talk about race, like, I would say, like, I think yeah only that that uh, particular l op-ed was uh commissioned and you know it came during a time when like i mean you know all, all like it, it felt like you know every media outlet in the u.s was all of a sudden like starting to talk about anti-asian racism and like mm -hmm. uh, asian hate crimes like a year late i mean this whole like pandemic of uh like asian hate i would say um had started I, like you started seeing this surge in anti-Asian hate like I would say like around March 2020 which is like you know when uh, we like when the lockdowns uh, started due to COVID mm. um, so I mean this 
wave of anti-Asian hate crimes had been happening for a whole year. And during that time, like you didn't really see the media really talking about it, really like showing it. I mean, like you, you, like you might see like, you know, some incidents like here and there, but like, which is very sporadic and people weren't, weren't talking about it at all. And then it's like, oh yeah. Like, I mean, when, when those Asian women got shot in Atlanta, uh, again, like in March, it was like almost like exactly a year later, right? In, yeah. in March, 2021, um, all of a sudden, like people just started talking about uh, Asia, like like uh, anti-Asian hate and, and uh, all these hate crimes that were happening against Asian Americans. And it was just like, yeah. And, and so I guess like, you know, um, the L editors, like they, they also wanted to uh, run at least one piece that addressed it in some way and you know it's, again like since I was already in contact with them like they mm -hmm. naturally reached out to me um, and you know like I, I think it's great that they decided to do that that they, that they gave me the opportunity to write about it yeah but I remember like I, that whole time like I mean come on like you know like like Asians were getting attacked and even murdered for a whole year and it took that long for people to notice mm -hmm. So again, just going back to this whole issue of like, you know, Asian Americans kind of being like the invisible minority. And that also ties into the whole model minority myth. Like, you mm -hmm. know, we're the ones that are supposed to like, basically like, you know, be quiet and not complain. Um, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on about this. And I mean, I don't know, again, like, I just don't know like how, because like, like even here in America, like these are, somewhat like controversial topics to talk about so <laughs> that's why I'm just like kind of it's just really hard for like I don't know how articulate I'm being at the moment but like it's yeah <laughs> but I, I will say that I'm listening I'm understanding and I, I, I can feel not only how important it is but I understand the complexity of the issue which is why you know it's interesting to talk about it rather than just read a piece which is that kind of one way uh, information but your pieces were great on that and um, you know they obviously resonated if if we can I, I, I want to turn towards the next section um, which looks I guess then ahead at your story Regina um, because you've already achieved so much um, you've done so, written so many things in so many places but where does the Regina Kim story go from here is there an end goal? Is there an ultimate vision in what you're doing? Is there something that you could do that you would think, yeah, I did that. That's, that's it. What's, what comes next? Well, I mean, to be quite honest, like I hope to like be able to continue writing about, you know, happy things. <laughs> like I want to continue writing about um, like, you know, K-dramas and, and K-pop and just like, you know, promoting Korean pop culture in general. and Crime um, dramas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just really hard for me to like, you know, write or like, you know, even talk about um, like, you know, painful topics and, and, but like, you know, again, like I'm, I'm glad that you asked me those questions, but um, oof, it's just one of those things that, you know, like even, even for many like American audiences, I think it, it would be hard for people to really like grasp, like you just, anyway. So um, <laughs> what happens in my future? Um, I mean, I, I feel like the I, I feel like my goalpost is like constantly moving and I imagine like you know that's probably the case for a lot of other people as well but yeah. I remember like 
you know, just a decade ago, you know, like I remember thinking like, oh, I hope I can find a job where I can just, you know, write about Korean culture and, and get paid for it and, you know, find a way to like, you know, help promote Korean culture. And I mean, that's what I'm doing today. Mm. But now it's like, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, write more articles, um, you know, become a more pro prolific writer. Um, I want to, you know, obviously, like, you know, continue um, writing for Netflix, as well as for uh, other publications. Um, and honestly, like, I, I want to write a screenplay, I want to finish a screenplay. <laughs> it's been like on the back burner for like so long. And um, it's funny, because like, I mean, I have like, uh, various screenplays that I've just kind of like started, but like, I haven't really finished. Um, and they all, you know, pertain to like either like Korean culture or like the Korean American experience. But like, um, you know, like in, in recent years, as again, like as, you know, Korean culture has just like really exploded. Mm. I feel like I'll have to like, you know, revisit some of those <laughs> scripts and just kind of like rewrite some of those things like, oh, yeah, like this is no longer relevant. Like, you know, mm. people are very much aware of like Korean pop culture. So but it's just, yeah, something that I hope to like achieve. What kind Same. of things are the screenplays about? Are they crime dramas as well, or any no, any no, common no. themes? Or do I would, we get any I would insight? never, I would never be able to write about. Uh, I, I would never be able to write crime dramas. Like I just, I don't, I, I just don't think I have um, the intellect for it. <laughs> I love watching them, but um, like I would never be able to craft one. Um, no, but like uh, you know, like romance stories, and just like um, there's one that's like. Uh, like really drawn from my own personal experiences just growing up as a Korean American as you know like 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 literally like the like one of like maybe three or four um you know Asian Americans mm -hmm. <laughs> like I think I think my my family was like one of only like two or three uh Asian families in the entire like city where I grew up in Georgia so that that in itself was a was an interesting experience and just like you know going through high school as like you know one of like the only um asian students and then um going to a college where like all of a sudden like i was just surrounded by so many asian students and i'm also mm. like surrounded by uh you know lots of wealthy people um because i also like i like where i grew up in georgia um, many of the families um including mine were like you know working class or like lower middle class and then just going from that to like you know, an Ivy League school where like you're you're constantly surrounded by like the top, the, the wealthiest one percent of American mm. society. So that was definitely a culture shock. So just kind of like drawing on my um, experiences there. I look forward to watching it whenever I've been doing my work. <laughs> I remember when I was doing my PhD and someone mm -hmm. told me, David, there's two types of PhD dissertations, perfect ones and finished ones. So I did a finished one. You know, because you could you could spend you could spend years and years and you never quite get it. You never quite get it. And it kind of motivated me. Sometimes you just have to to finish something. Um, but I look forward to that. I, I'm going to ask you one last question, uh, Regina. And we've perhaps touched on elements of this uh, already, but um, we're all in this world together. So I'd like to ask you, what is the purpose of life? What should we be living for? And how can we make more people's experiences here more rewarding and valuable? Oh my God, <laughs> that's a very deep philosophical question. That's like the age old question, right? Yep. Like what's the purpose of life? Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? That's the question. 
uh i mean you know if i if i had I, like i don't think there's like one uh single answer to that right like i don't think there's just like one right answer to that um but like i guess for me um personally uh i, I guess like my answer at the moment would be um you know just to like uh find out what your passion is um and just you know keep pursuing it um you know i believe that each and every one of us um, is given, you know, our own unique talents, and we have to figure out like, you know, how to use those talents to um, make an impact on on the world, um, on other people's lives. And so that's, and that, I mean, that's what I hope to do and to continue um, doing. You know, I, I feel like I have found my passion, which is like finding ways to like, you know, write about like Korean culture and like, you know, write about my own uh, heritage and and just to kind of like inform and educate people uh, about like Korean culture, especially since like, again, like it's just like, you know, it's, it's blowing up. Mm. Um, but, you know, like whether it's like, you know, making a positive impact on the world, I don't know, but I hope so. It's just like my, you know, way of like, you know, con I guess like contributing <laughs> to to the universe in some way. Um, but I, I mean, I think that uh, you just have to like find what you're, what, what makes you happy, right? What you're passionate about. And then I, I, I think, you know, the rest will kind of just fall into place. Um, and I have to say that like, you know, just based on my own experience, like it, it took me a long, it, it took me a long time to find the courage to like really pursue my passion. You know, part of it was because, um, of you know, you, you, there's always a risk, right? Like there's always a risk that like, if you go all in uh, on, on something, then like, you know, you, like, it, like it might not go well, like you might fail and then what happens? And um, and so like, I, you know, I, for, for a very long time, I just kind of like, you know, struggled with like, well, I know my passion is, you know, finding ways to promote Korean culture, but like, can I actually make a living doing it? Like, can I actually, you know, be able to like pay the rent and, and pay the bills? And, and that's another reason why, like for a very long time, um, partly because like a lot of the, uh, you know, like the writing and journalism positions in general don't pay well in the U.S., like it's a travesty like I don't know why but like I find that like you know journalists are like one of the you know like one of the best educated yet yet like worst paid people <laughs> in the U.S. like if you're talking about like white color white collar jobs like I wouldn't be surprised if like journalism is like one of the lowest paying jobs um so it was just really hard for me to like pursue journalism full time. And I just had to like take on all these other like full-time jobs that paid a lot better. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, now I finally found a place that actually, yeah, like pays me really well and, and like pays me to do what I'm passionate about. So, yeah. And I, and I hope the same, you know, I, I, I hope a lot of people out there will, you know, be able to like experience that, same I guess um happiness when it comes to their career being paid to play sometimes I think the <laughs> biggest uh, th that's what it's like it doesn't feel like work it feels like you're enjoying what you do well, I, like I mean I still have to like you know pitch ideas and and write articles <laughs> but no actually trust me like when when you know that you have to like 
you know, finish watching a certain number of TV shows and write an article about those shows by a certain deadline. It, yeah, it's, yeah, you do feel some pressure. I can imagine. I can imagine. I, I think one of the important things, though, like you said, though, is that passion. And I think one of the hardest things sometimes for people to do is to, to find the passion in the first place, like a sense mm. of kind of, well, I don't know, this person's into art and this person's into horse riding, but I don't know what I like. And that's sometimes I think the biggest difficult step for people to find that that thing in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that, like, I think for many of us, though, like, you know, there's always that that inner voice. And I know it sounds like very cliche like when, when, when people say they're like, oh, you have to listen to your inner voice. And I, I remember like hearing that so many times like growing up, but like mm -hmm. I, I never really like, I guess I never really took it seriously. But like now that I look back, like, yeah, like for a very long time, like probably since like high school, even um, there was that inner voice of like, oh, like I want to do something, you know, related to like, yeah, like promoting Korean culture. And just like, you know, it, uh, like educating people about uh, like my, my own uh, heritage. But it was, again, it was just like, like along the way, there's just like so many, you know, obstacles that yeah. you might encounter. And of course, like you're also trying to like think about like what other people say. And even back then, like so many of <laughs> so like so many of the people that were um, around me were just like, what are you thinking? Like, I mean, to be quite honest, like even my parents, right? Like even when I was in, you know, college, uh, my parents, um, many of my friends, even like some of my other, like some of my Korean and Korean American classmates were like, why are you like so interested in like Korean culture, you know, like, mm -hmm. and I remember like, you know, yeah, like we would, like there was like a group of, um, you know, Korean American students who like lobbied the administration uh, to, you know, hopefully get them to uh, like, uh, launch more like Korean related classes like whether it's like classes on Korean history culture etc and there just wasn't interest because like it felt like almost nobody thought of Korea like South Korea as being an important country at the time mm -hmm. and then like even when I was in grad school between like 2009 and 2011 um, I mean I actually focused on Korean studies in grad school um, I went to uh, like I attend well I studied international relations in grad school and I concentrated in Korea studies and even in even when I was in grad school, like most of the professors and even my classmates, including my Korean classmates, were interested in like North Korea. They're just like, you know, it, it was like, who cares about, you know, Korean culture? Like no one took it seriously. And so I for a very long time, I always felt like I was kind of like the odd person out. I was like crazy for wanting to do this. But then like by then, like, you know, by the time I was in grad school, like. I knew that this was something that I wanted to do, even though like almost everyone I ran into, like just thought I was being crazy and stupid and foolish. <laughs> um, but you know, it's like, it like you can't always control the timing, but mm. like, I think, you know, if you know what you're passionate about, you listen to your inner voice and you just take risks and try to make it happen. Like, I think eventually it will happen. Uh, and you have to believe in yourself because there will be people that doubt you or there are people who tell you not to do it. I was speaking to, to Becky White this week and she does the, the Harfi project where she speaks to people of mixed. And she said the same thing. Everyone's telling her, what are you doing? Don't do that. And 
that always happens no matter what you're doing you have to you have to push through that sometimes i think um yeah exactly and everybody loves and now it can just be like ha ha like i told you so and it's kidding <laughs> i'm just kidding my, it doesn't always work like that but <laughs> I, I agree about North Korea, by the way. So many of my undergrads, when we do Korean studies, they're, they're fascinated by North Korea because I think they see it as a as a puzzle or a problem that they can solve or there's something that they're going to... It's it's very appealing to people to study in that way, uh, often more so than South Korea, which is even more of a conundrum, I think. Oh, um, okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Regina, let's... Let's call it uh, an end here, I think. How about that? So Yeah, sounds good. Relax. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> no, thank you. I, I, I loved listening to you. I, I think I learned a lot. Um, so thank you for being so candid. Uh, thank you yeah. for sharing. Thank you for sharing your time, most importantly. I think that's yeah. it's a big commitment. So thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Yeah, 